Good morning, church. It's kind of sad. It's summertime, I know. Say it one more time. Good morning, church. All right. I'm just making sure you guys are awake before we get started. Thank you, Will, and the worship team for leading us. If you guys noticed, um, those songs we sang, they're very gospel-saturated, so that's for a reason. So as we're praising God, it's just kind of taking us through a progression of corporately confessing that we are not good enough, we're confessing our sin, uh, but also proclaiming that Jesus is enough, that he's better, um, and looking at his mercy, and that is more than enough for us and our needs. Um, so I'm very thankful for that, and that we can be ministered to during worship. And so as we continue during this time of worship to God, um, we're going to jump into the book of Jonah. We've been here for a couple of weeks now. We're going to spend most of the summer there. Um, so you're welcome to turn in your Bible. You also have the, the printed bulletin style of Jonah, if you'd like to follow along with that with me. Um, we're going to read all of chapter 1, all right? So just go ahead and follow along with me. Um, feel free to have a pen in your hand if you want to and, and write along as we go. And Lord, the word says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, that this, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights." So we spent the last couple of weeks in um, the book of Jonah. Last week when Spencer preached, um, he asked us to think about the hardest thing that God has ever asked you to do. Um, I wasn't here last week, but I listened to it online, and so it made me think, and I could think of a few different instances in which I felt like God was calling me to do something hard, step into some sort of a moment, um, but one really jumps out to me in particular. Um, so 
It was when I was working at Doe River Gorge, which has been 10 years ago. It's hard to believe it's been 10 years, and I'm considered one of the old folks now for Doe River, um, even though I feel pretty young. But it was 10 years ago, so at the time I was 17, um, and I was a counselor for the summer, worked the entire summer. Um, Ironically, during Big Kids Week, most of my kids were my age or a little bit older, like 15 to 17. I even had an 18-year-old at one point. Um, So naturally, I didn't tell them how old I was until like the last night. You know, I didn't want them to realize that they were coming to me to ask permission to go get medicine or the bathroom or something like that. So didn't want to do that. But anyway, so there was this one particular group. There was a youth group that came from Georgia um, that were rooming with me. And so I had this one particular kid in that youth group. And every day at some point in time during the day, he would ask to borrow my Bible and go off to pray. And so at the time, I thought, you know, that's great. You know, this kid, he, he wants to, to read God's Word. He wants to pray. So that's fantastic. Um, but at the time, I wasn't as spiritually aware that there was probably something else that was going on as well. Um, so I remember, I think it was the last night of Thursday night, and I was walking into the big top for the evening service. And as I was walking in, I just happened to look over to my left to the stairs that lead up to um, the rail cars, and I see my kid, this same kid, that's sitting on the steps. And clearly, you know, he's a little bit downcast. Something's wrong. And so my natural instinct is just be like, okay, he'll be fine in a couple of minutes. I've got half a dozen or more kids to, to worry about, so I'm going to go sit down. Um, but for whatever reason, in that moment, I felt that God was compelling me to go talk to him. And thankfully, I didn't listen to myself, and I obeyed. And so I went over to this kid, and I sat down and talked to him to ask him what was going on what was wrong. And so he proceeded to tell me about all kinds of things that had happened in his life, from parents being divorced and um, losing a girlfriend, that sort of thing. And he'd been struggling with depression for a long time. And just a couple months before camp, he had um, attempted suicide. And so I'm a 17-year-old kid talking to a 15-year-old kid, and I'm thinking, what in the world do I do in this moment? Um, But that was just an instance in which I felt that God was calling me to do something hard. So naturally, I went and found someone older and wiser and got some help and that sort of thing. Um, But when I was thinking of that story in that moment that I did, by God's grace, obey, it also made me think of other times in my life that I didn't do what he asked me to do. Because there's been other times that I've had these hard things that I felt like God was calling me to walk into, and for whatever reason, you know, I went the other way. And it made me think for all of us, how many times have we had an opportunity to step into a gospel moment, but instead we have walked the other direction and that we have obeyed our natural instinct to run? I think that's one of the problems. In our flesh, our natural instinct is to run from those hard things that God asks of us. I think certainly we can look at the culture around us and say that um, culture is running away from God right? Um, You can look at everything. There is no absolute truth in today's culture, and you can point at them and say, yes, they are running from God's light. In John John chapter 3, verse 20, it tells us that everyone that does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. So we can see our culture. We can see that it is running and say, yes, I see that. But the hard thing that we need to do is to stop and point the finger back at ourselves, because the truth is that we also run from God as well. You and I both run. And in reality, the people of God have been running to him essentially from the very beginning. If you go all the way back to Genesis and you look in the Garden of Eden and you have God that tells Adam and Eve they can eat from any fruit in the garden with the exception of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's the one thing that they couldn't do. And of course, that's the one thing that they did do, right? They end up eating. We all know that um, portion of the story. But what's interesting is in um, chapter 3, verse 8, It tells us that they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And that's a phrase I want us to really think about, this idea of hiding ourselves from the Lord, because it sounds an awful lot like Jonah, and it sounds an awful lot like you and me. You see, the problem is that like Jonah, we feel or believe that the cost of obedience is too high. 
When God calls us to do hard things, we have the tendency to take the easy route. You see, God called Jonah to do something hard. That's what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. Um, so you had the, uh, Jonah. He was commissioned by God to go to a foreign land full of evil people um, who had done all these terrible things and to prophesy their destruction unless they were to repent and turn back to God. And we've already discussed that you know, Jonah, he took the easy road when it came to this. He looked at this foreign nation full of all these Gentiles. They committed these terrible atrocities against the Israelites and other people. And Jonah also knew that God would one day use them to, um, to punish Israel for its sin. And he felt that the cost of obedience was too high. You see, he didn't share in God's love for this lost city of Nineveh. He had no desire for them to repent and to believe in the God of Israel. So Jonah looked at this big, hard calling that God had given him. And he decided, no, Lord, you ask too much. I'm out. And so in verse 3, it shows us that he took the easy road. It says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And that phrase, running from the presence of the Lord, is repeated twice in that same verse. Because it's really emphasizing Jonah's attempt to get away from God. Remember that in fleeing to Tarshish, Jonah is trying to get as far away from the city of Nineveh as he can. Uh, But even more than that, he's also leaving his own homeland. I think it's interesting that he didn't just say, no, God, I'm good where I am, and just continue on his same path. No, he was completely running from God because he felt the presence of God was in the land of Israel. And so he's going in the complete opposite direction. And I think that's crazy, you know. Jonah is a prophet. And so a prophet is, um, ha- is blessed to be able to hear directly from the word of God. And he's given both the responsibility and the authority to go to those people and to say those words. Um, And even later on, um, Jonah, he proclaims in verse 9 that he fears the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And yet, he heads directly to that sea to get away from the God that he supposedly serves. How crazy is it that this professional um, is running away from the God that he proclaims to serve? I think it's also important for us to understand, though, that Jonah is symbolic of the nation of Israel as well. So even though the entire Old Testament traces the story of, of Israel and God's people, Um, God is also concerned with the other nations of the earth. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 and chapter 24, we see that God commands Israel to allow foreigners and sojourners alongside of widows and orphans to be able to glean from the fields. It's a part of God's law because he had a heart for the other nations of the earth, not just his own people. And we see this played out directly in the book of Ruth. If you were here with us last summer, we preached through Ruth. And so we see that Boaz allows Ruth to glean from his fields. And so what this is, is it's showing us that God has a heart for the nations as well. And that he also cared for the Gentiles as well as his people. You see, for the Israelites, they have an awful lot of national pride. Probably more than you and I do even on the 4th of July, where we see all these fireworks stands everywhere, and you go spend way more money than you should because you turn into a little kid and you want to send off all these fireworks. Well, the nation of Israel, they had even more national pride than what we do. Because every single Israelite, they could trace back their lineage all the way back to the 12 tribes of Israel, to the 12 sons of Israel. And they also knew their story of the people of God. They knew that God had called Abraham out of all the men on the earth to make a mighty nation out of that would bless the nations of the earth. They knew that God had taken their people when they were in the slavery in the land of Egypt and had brought them out with power. They also knew that they were the people of God. And so to them, they would look at themselves and say, we are the people of God, and everybody else, those are the Gentiles. And so a lot of times, there were people in the nation of Israel that did not necessarily share God's heart for those other nations. 
And so the story of Jonah is very much God teaching his own nation that he has a heart for, those, for these other people. Spencer explained that God has a heart for the nations, and the Israelites needed to understand this fact. You see this continue to play out in the New Testament as well when you look at the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, and they are given a commission to go and to share to the Gentiles of Christ. And that is still true for today. But I think that for many of us, perhaps even all of us, we look at God's calling on our lives, and we, like Jonah, feel that the cost of obedience is too high. We look at that hard thing that God is asking of us to do, and we feel that it is more than we can handle. So we take the easy road and we run from his presence. And we all run for lots of different reasons. I think sometimes we run maybe because we don't trust that his plan is what's best for us. So a lot of us, we look like my daughter May. Um, she's 17 months old and my wife and I, we understand that she needs a nice, well-balanced meal to be provided for. And so we, we create that meal, which really and truly, it's just my wife who's doing the hard work. But we make this meal for her so that way she is able to get all the nutrients that need. And what does she do? What does she do? She throws the veggies on the floor, pushes the tray away, and she wants her mac and cheese or something like that, right? And it's because she doesn't understand that our plan for her is what's best. And just like that, you and I, we oftentimes don't understand or maybe we just don't believe that God's plan is what's best for us in our life. I think other ways that we run, for some of us, um, we are in sin. And even though we know that God's word tells us to no longer to be slaves to sin, we instead take the easy road. I think a lot of times we are comfortable and we have this sense that um, even though we're going into greater and greater and greater sin, we think, no, it's, it's going to be okay. I can get out whatever I want to get out. So we take the easy road and we stay in that sin. But I think for us, what is most poignant in this passage that we really need to pay attention to is that many of us are running from God's call or commission in our lives. We look at the great commission that God calls us to go and make disciples and we think, no, Lord, you ask too much. We are lazy in our faith. We take the easy road. And there's lots of different ways that we have the tendency to do this in our lives. I think that many men struggle with leading their, their wives and their families well spiritually. You see, for me, it's a lot easier to not pray with Rachel every single night. And a lot of times I don't because I'm like, oh, you know, we'll spend quality time together and we'll watch Netflix. And while there is a, a time and a place for that, um, it's a lot easier to do that sort of thing, to watch those Netflix show, when in, in reality I know that God has asked me to watch my wife with the word of God. I think it's far easier for us to not be vulnerable with our children, to share of our own struggles and how the gospel speaks to those struggles, when in reality we know that God has asked us to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I think it's a lot easier for us just to assume that as long as they grow up in church, they'll turn out okay. I think it's a lot easier for us to avoid having to go and talk to our neighbors and have these kind of awkward conversations that tend to come up because you don't really get along with them all that well or maybe they're just a little bit different when we know that God has called us to act or asked us to love our neighbors ourselves, It's a lot easier for us to avoid those hard conversations with friends and loved ones when we know in reality that God has called us to speak the truth in love. It's a lot easier to avoid having conversations with our, our coworkers when, God is, when we know that God has asked us to make disciples. It's a lot easier to not get up and walk across this room to somebody that is mourning when we know that God has called us to mourn with those who mourn. It's a lot easier for us to drive by government housing in the cities in which we live and to avoid those people when we know that God has called us to sell all that we have and give it to the poor. 
It is a lot easier to look at people that struggle with drugs and alcoholism and other things and to look on them with contempt and with judgment when we know that the gospel tells us that we were once far from Christ just as they are. And it's only by Jesus' love that we know him. We look at all these hard things that the Bible tells us to do and we think, you know, that's, the cost of obedience is too high. God, you ask too much of me. And so we run. But the good news is that even though you and I run, God does not. There is always grace. Even though you and I tend to choose the easy road and continually run from God, he is continually running towards us. It doesn't matter how hard or how far we run from him, he is always in pursuit. The most beautiful phrase that James pointed out a couple weeks ago in this um, chapter of Jonah is the phrase in verse 4, but the Lord. And that phrase comes up all throughout the Bible. See, although Jonah runs from his presence, God runs towards Jonah. And although we run from the presence of God, he runs towards us. And that's the good news of the gospel. In the book of Jonah, God is always in pursuit. We see that he is not only pursuing Jonah, but he's also pursuing these pagan sailors. He's pursuing the city of Nineveh. And it's interesting that he does that all through this wonderful storm, this powerful storm that he orchestrates. And I don't want us to gloss over this storm and, and just to read it and to keep going. I really want us to stop and think through like what this was probably like. Look with me at verses 4 through 6. It says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise. Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So I really want you to stop and think about this, the intensity of this storm for a minute. We've heard this story many times if you grew up in church. It's easy to not really think about it. But I want you to think of something like the movie The Perfect Storm. It came out a long time ago. It came back. Came, it was released in the year 2000. I was nine years old in the year 2000. Um, so I don't know how many of you guys may remember that story. It's been a while, 18 years ago. But think with me just for a minute. So it's this story of this shipping vessel um, in 1991 that was out, and it was fishing in the ocean. And so it gets caught up in this huge storm, the perfect storm, right? And so in this storm, they've already experienced all these terrible things happening. And there's a scene in the movie in which everything kind of slows down and the sun kind of peeks out because they've reached the eye of the storm. And the sailors look at each other and they say, we're going to make it. And then just as soon as they say that, everything gets dark again. The wind and the rain and the thunder and the lightning all increase. And the next thing you know, there's this huge wave. And they look at this wave and they look up and up and up and up because this wave is getting bigger and bigger. And so they have no choice but to face this wave head on. So they turn the boat towards this wave. They hit the gas. They're climbing up as high as they can. They get near the top, and it topples over. The boat is capsized. So that's the kind of image that I think of when I read this, um, this phrase, this, this tempest, right? A tempest is hurricane-like conditions. Okay, that's what's going on in the story of Jonah, this huge wave. And so you have these... Um, these guys who are on the ship, right? They spend their entire lives on it, and they're freaking out, right? Because the ship, it is creaking and moaning, and it is threatening, literally, to break apart. 
And so they are rowing as hard and as fast as they can. They're doing everything that they know and have been trained to do. They're rowing. You can imagine just the sweat dripping down and their muscles are tearing because they're rowing so hard. They're taking their livelihood and they're throwing it over the ship. And they're crying out to their God, to their little G God. Because they're at a point and they're like, you know what? This is it. We're not going to make it. There's nothing left to do. And despite all of their best best efforts, it looks like they're going to go down with the ship. Because their efforts are subject to the will of God. And where is Jonah during all this crazy commotion of this ship that's rocking back and forth? He's in the bottom of the ship, sound asleep in a deep sleep in a state of spiritual ruin because he is fleeing from the presence of God. And just think about how crazy that is for him. Remember, he is a, he's a prophet of God. He is called to speak God's word to people. And he should be the very one in the middle of this storm proclaiming God's power to these pagan sailors. But where is he? He's sound asleep. And a pagan captain has to go and literally shake him awake and command that he call out to the very God that he should already be proclaiming to these men. You might be tempted to look at this storm that God has orchestrated and see his wrath. You think these poor sailors, they're just caught up in the consequences of Jonah's sin. And that isn't very fair for them. And though that's true, they are caught up in his consequences. We must remember that this storm is God's grace. It is his pursuit of not only Jonah, but also these sailors that don't know him. In Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us that God disciplines those that he loves, just as a father does his son. God disciplines us for our good. If God was truly wrathful towards Jonah, he would let Jonah keep going the opposite direction and allow him to go into greater and greater depths of sin. But by God's grace, he pursues Jonah. In our walk with Christ, I think a lot of times we tend to be like these sailors. Sometimes we're in the middle of a storm and all we can see is God's wrath. We wonder how in the world can a good God allow this terrible thing to happen to me or to my family? We look at the storms and the waves and all we can see is his wrath and his judgment and think that it's all over. And so we turn to ourselves and to so many other things to get ourselves out of these storms. Like the sailors, we are rowing hard. We think that if I could just do this one thing, get to this one point in my life, everything will be okay. We think if I could make just a little bit more money, then I can provide for my family. And we try to do it in our own power. We think if I could be just a little bit better of a Christian, then God would love me and bless me. Or we start to throw out things overboard, just like the the sailors as well. Sometimes we throw out certain people that are in our lives um, in order to make things better. But the only true reality is that the only one who can bring us out of the storm is the same one that's allowing us to go through it. And I think that's a baffling thing for us to understand about God. See, if you're a parent in this room, you look at your children and you want to do all that you can to provide for them and protect them. So you give them the best life that they possibly can. You're trying to protect them from the cruelty that's in the world because you don't want them to go through anything that's hard or that's terrible. But the truth is that God loves them even more, and he's not afraid for them to fall flat on their face going through a terrible storm if that means in the end they're going to turn back to him because he loves us that much. Other times in our walk with Christ, we look a lot like Jonah. You see, we're running from God, and we're in the middle of this huge storm where all these crazy things are happening around us, and we're in the middle of this spiritual ruin, and we are foolishly asleep. We're in the middle of a storm, and we think everything's okay. We fool ourselves into thinking that we could continue down the same path of deeper and deeper sin, 
and that it's all okay. How many of us are spiritually asleep and heading for disaster? How many of us sit in chairs on Sunday mornings thinking that spiritually everything's okay because I'm doing the right thing? I'm in church every week. But the truth is that we are running from obedience and we're running from the hard call of God. Even though the storm may be terrible, the gospel tells us that God is in pursuit. Because this storm, this crisis, it's a potential turning point. And it's an opportunity for us to repent and to choose obedience. Something I really want you to remember, a crisis is a potential turning point. This storm, it was an opportunity for Jonah to quit running and to turn back to God in obedience. This storm was an opportunity for the pagan sailors to quit trusting in themselves and their own abilities and to instead trust and know the God of Israel. And that's what happens in the end. In verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You see, these men, they now know the Lord of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So they're no longer trusting in themselves or their little G-God. Instead, they're they're trusting in the big G-God. And also, God's grace continues towards Jonah because he doesn't leave him in the middle of the sea. He sends his great fish that comes to swallow him and eventually to take him to dry land. See, we need to remember that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and God called Jonah to arise and to go to Nineveh to proclaim his message. See, God has a heart for the nations, and he desires that all should come to know him. But I think for us in the religious South, our orthodoxy does not match our orthopraxy. See, what I mean is we proclaim God in our words. We proclaim to know him. We proclaim that he is Lord. We sit in chairs on Sundays and hear his word preached to us, and we sing songs and worship to him. We speak to one another um, in our community groups proclaiming these truths, and we shake our heads in affirmation when we hear these phrases like, wash your wives with the word of God, bring up your kids in discipline and instruction of the Lord, speak the truth in love, love others as yourself, make disciples, mourn with those that are hurting, sell all and give it away. Empty of ourselves, serve others. We, we say these things and we shake our heads in affirmation. But when it comes to actually practicing these things, when we have real people who are hurting and real conversations that need to be had, a lot of times we feel that the cost of obedience is too high. And so we run. We take the easy road and we go in the other direction. See, the point of the storm is to drive us to our knees. And that's where we are called to go first. We must first start with confession. In Jonah's case, unfortunately, he is forced to confess. He doesn't come right out and own up to what he has done. He's shaken awake, and they have to cast lots to figure out that it's him. And then even in the end, he's like, yeah, it's my fault, but I'm not going to jump off the ship. You're going to have to throw me off, right? But for us, we have an opportunity to come in humility to confession, to confess to Jesus, to our spouse, our kids, our friends, that there have been times that we have taken the easy road. And in the middle of this humility and this confession, we can turn back to the gospel. Because you see, Jesus is the better Jonah. He is the better you and he's the better me. Jesus was given a commission. He was given a hard task. He was called to leave heaven, everything that he had, to come to earth, to live alongside of people like you and me, to live a perfect life. And then, hardest of all, 
he was also willingly to die an excruciating death for you and for me. I'm reminded of a few weeks ago when, Carl, when Carlos um, spoke of Philippians 2, 5 through 8. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was flee- in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he f- humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus faced his own storm. He faced arrest and humiliation. He faced being beaten and dying slowly on a cross, taking on the sins of all of mankind and facing the wrath of God and doing all of this so that you and me, Gentiles and Ninevites, might know God's grace and might have a hope of spending eternity with Jesus. Unlike Jonah and unlike you and unlike me, who run from God's calling, Christ willingly died, and he took a step towards you and towards me. This summer, I've been spending most of my Thursdays in Elizabethan, my Thursday afternoons, serving with a wonderful ministry called TLC in Elizabethan. And TLC, it does all kinds of different things, more than I can even begin to remember or to recite to you, but it does all kinds of different things from abortion alternatives to a summer food program. And so in their summer food program, what they do is um, different area churches and individuals, they have given money um, to provide three meals a day for over 400 kids in Elizabeth and in Carter County, every day all summer long. And so for these kids, they, during the school year, they get free breakfast and free lunch, but during the summer, they have no clue where their next meal is necessarily coming from. They're not guaranteed a hot meal every day. And so TLC has recognized this, and they come in and they provide that for them. And so for me, I haven't done anything spectacular. All I've done is sit in the van and ride on these different food routes. And so we go throughout Elizabeth and throughout Carter County into these different low-income communities. And some of these places, they are so destitute that it reminds me of when I went to Africa a few years ago in these terrible conditions. And in each of these little communities, there are these little children and teenagers um, who are living in these conditions, and they don't know where their next meal is coming from. They're not guaranteed that. And so what we do is we go to these communities, they get, we give each kid a bag, and we provide them with meals and snacks that's going to get them through the next 24 hours, and we pray with them. We pray these little gospel-saturated prayers so that they know it's not just a bunch of strangers showing up giving them food, it is Jesus that is providing their daily bread for them, and so that they know that it's Jesus who loves them. I think you and I, and we, we hear stories like that, and it's really easy for our hearts to go out for these kids to go out to these children in need. It's easy for us to, to give some money, or maybe some of us have a little extra time so we're able to go and to physically serve for these children, because it's easy to have a heart for these poor kids. But I wonder if you'd have a heart for their parents and their grandparents, who when we pull up into some of these communities, a few of them are so high on drugs that they're passed out on the porch while the kid comes and gets food from us. Or some of them that do come over and think it's for providing food for their kids, they're missing a bunch of teeth, and the last few that they have are black and decaying. It's really easy to have a heart for the kids, but what about these parents and these grandparents that are supposed to be providing for these kids? Do you love those people? Because God does. Do you want them to hear the gospel and to know Jesus? Because he does want them to. During one of these food stops, I met a guy. Um, in Carter County, and he was the uncle of some of these kids that we were providing for. 
And he's a very nice guy. His name is Nathan. And he was thanking us for being there and serving these kids food and, and doing these nice things. And he was very polite and appreciative. He was also spoke of going to church and, and God and what God's doing in his life. But Nathan, he shared a little bit of his struggle with me while we were giving um, some food to the kids there. He shared that he was a, had been a struggling alcoholic and that he had been two weeks sober. And that the moment that he knew that something needed to change was when he had consumed an entire pint of moonshine by himself. And in between throwing up from drinking that alcohol, he realized that something needed to change. And so he was proclaiming God and, and how thankful he was that God had helped him to be sober for two weeks. And while that's good, I'll confess in that moment and in my sin and looking a lot like Jonah, I thought, you know, by the end of summer, he's probably going to go back to alcohol. Maybe even by the next Thursday that I come back. Does your heart and does my heart ache for the Nathans of the world? Deep down, I think we have this feeling that, that they're a little bit different and that there's no hope for these people. But this is our, our Nineveh. Do you feel compelled to share the gospel with people like Nathan? And do you feel that they are worth your time and your inconvenience? Because to God, they are worth it. See, my fear is that you and I, we come to church each week, we sing praises to God, we hear his word proclaimed, we take communion to remember what Christ has done for us, but then we just go back to our lives. My fear is that we proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior, and we hear things like the Great Commission, and we shake our heads, yes, that's right, that's what should be happening, but then we never go. My fear is that our faith is only skin deep and that our actions are lukewarm. Later on in Revelation chapter 3, God is speaking to the church of Laodicea. He says, I know your works that are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And I think that's a warning for us. You see, church, it's not enough just to proclaim to know Jesus, but your lives must actually live out what God has called you to do. In verse 3 of Jonah chapter 1, God tells Jonah to arise and to go. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. And there is an expectation that Jonah would obey. Look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. It says, go and make disciples. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. And God expects that we are going to obey it. Now, I know what some of you guys are thinking. You're thinking, I, I don't have any free time to go and ride on a van throughout some of these different neighborhoods or go to these different places or to serve in a soup kitchen or do any of these different things. And, and even if I did have the time, I have no clue where to begin. But I think we can start somewhere small. See, I wonder what it would look like for every husband in this room to pray with his wife every night before bed. I would wonder what it would look like for the children in our church, for our children to understand God's grace in their lives because parents have taken an active role in their discipleship and have taken just little small opportunities every single day to point them back to Jesus. I'd wonder what it would look like for our families and our community groups to go and to serve in places like TLC and Elizabethan or Good Samaritan or Agape Women's Ministries in Johnson City once a month. I wonder what it would look like for us to know the struggles that our neighbors and our coworkers are having and to be able to share the gospel with them simply because we took the step of walking across the street or across the cubicle. What would it look like for our church to be full of people with stories of the amazing things that God has done simply because we took steps in the direction of what God has asked us and not away from it? 
I wonder what it would look like for our church to be full of these Nathans who are able to say that God's people did the hard thing. They came to a community um, way back in a holler somewhere that makes you think twice about driving down it, and they shared the love of Jesus with me. What would it look like for people to have these sort of testimonies? Simply because we did not run, but we obeyed. Instead of running from God's call on our lives, I think we should look to God's word, where it tells us to let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's in Hebrews chapter 12. See, Jesus is our example. And thankfully, when we do fall short, when we look at these hard things that God has asked us and we've turned the other direction, there's always grace. There's always Jesus. The Christian life is one of obedience, where Jesus calls us to come and to die. And it takes a daily fight and daily effort to run in the direction of God instead of to run from him. Romans 1.5 tells us that Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. See, there's this phrase, obedience of faith. And the only way that we are going to obey is through faith. And not just the original saving grace in which we come to know Jesus, but a daily faith that requires daily walking in obedience to him. The Apostle James, he reminds us that faith without works is dead. That doesn't mean that we have to do good things or to make something of ourselves in order for God to love us, but it means that if we truly love Jesus, then we're going to obey his commands. A couple of weeks ago when James preached, he said that just as the word of the Lord came to Jonah, this summer the word of the Lord would come to you and to me. If you're here today, then this message is for you. And the only question that remains is what are you going to do next? Are you going to run or are you going to obey? So as we ponder these things, we step into a time of communion and to the communion table where we have the comfort that Jesus meets us where we are. He doesn't expect us to have it all together or to look like we're the perfect Christian, but he does expect us to obey. And even though that we fall short of these different things that he has called us to do every single day, we have a great high priest who is able to meet us in our weakness. He's able to sympathize with us. And the good news is that even though we tend to turn away in these storms and these difficult things that God has asked of us, Jesus has done what we could not do. He came to the cross and he paid the price that you and I were not able to pay. It's the good news of God's grace in the gospel. And so we enter this time of communion and we remember what Christ has done. And so God's word tells us that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread. And this bread, it signifies Christ's body and what he did for us. The fact that he faced that storm, he faced the cross, and being beaten and having nails piercing his flesh. And so we take this bread and we physically rip it because it represents what Christ did for us. And he tells us to take this bread in remembrance of me. And then after the meal, he took a chalice of wine and he poured it, saying that this is my blood of the new covenant. And he tells us to take it and to drink it and to do this in remembrance of me. And so that's what communion is. It's coming to the table realizing that we have fallen short in our daily lives of what God has called of us. 
We sing these songs and we confess corporately our sin before him. But the good news is that Jesus did not fall short. And he's able to meet us in our weakness. And he's able to meet us where we are to be the better Jonah, the better you, and the better me. And so we take the communion not because we, we think we're terrible Christians, but because Jesus is better. And so we're able to take that knowing that God has given us his righteousness. So if you will, go ahead and stand. There's going to be a few men around the room with communion. So you take it as you're ready. At Redstone, we, we love to take it in little pockets of, of families and groups. And so if you're new here, it might be a little awkward, but I encourage you, if you're willing to, to step into somebody else's circle and to take that with them. Um, but take it as you're ready, and Will is going to play for us during communion. <laughs>